If you've got your Bible open to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm going to read through the text before we begin. Starting in verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Uh, 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 for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Amen. Uh, now, I'm not normally, uh, I don't normally name my sermons, uh, but I did decide to name this one. Thanks, Brent. Super fun text. Uh, so uh, we're going to pray. Uh, in all seriousness, look, Brent, praise God, is not called to singleness. Uh, we do not have a single pastor, and he has a family. Uh, and uh, I know it's me up here on graduation Sunday, uh, but we're allowing Brent to be a father today to celebrate his daughter graduating. Uh, and we're super thankful for you, Brent, and we love you. And thank you for the opportunity to sweat this out. Uh, so let's pray. Father, you are good and you are sovereign. And we are bad and broken and we just make a mess of everything. We're totally unfaithful in life, physically and spiritually. God, I just pray for all the single people in the room today that they will be convicted and empowered and encouraged by you. I pray for all the divorced people in the room that they will be convicted and empowered and encouraged by you. I pray for all the married people in the room, God, that they will be convicted and empowered and encouraged by you. That is all we need. We've confessed to you, Lord, and we have brought our sins to the cross, and you've been good to forgive us now. Bless our study. Get me out of the way, God, that I may not get in the way of your perfect message. And speak through me. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, starting in verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So, as we start off, all my single people in the room, my graduates, listen closely. Only 45% of American adults as of last year are married. That is down from the number in 1960, 75% of American adults were married. In 1960, less than 500,000 unmarried couples lived together, but today there are 17 million cohabitating just in the United States. And that number has more than tripled just in the last 20 years. So just since 2000, that number has tripled. I've always wondered, I'm like, why don't, if the world seems to be getting way worse, why aren't divorce rates getting worse? It seems like it's been at that 50% forever. It's not because people are staying married and it's because nobody gets married anymore. Cohabitation is up and marriage is down. And that is not the singleness that Paul is teaching about. So to be clear, that type of singleness is not a gift. It's a curse. Paul's not talking about non-committed and cohabitating relationships. This worldly singleness is demonic and it's a curse. So it's important for us that as we move into this text, we clearly define what exactly Paul means by singleness. So let's start with what singleness looks like for Paul himself. Uh, now, nobody is, can be 100% certain on what Paul's marital status was. A lot of people assume that he was never married, but that would have honestly been very, very unlikely for a, a Jewish rabbi to not be married. Uh, but it's not impossible. So it is possible that Paul was at some point married and that his wife either died or she left him at some point, maybe after he became a Christian. 
Uh, but I always like what John Piper says, which is supposition makes for poor exposition. Uh, so I don't want to dwell on this, but what we could dwell on what we do know, which is that he was single from when he wrote this letter to the time of his beheading. Now, a common misconception that I held to for quite some time is that, uh, and I see a lot in the world today, is that the gift of singleness, the idea of the gift of singleness in Scripture is something that is given only to some and only for a lifetime. I've always had, for so long, I've had the impression that the gift of singleness was something that was lifelong. But that's not the case. And we know it's not the case because of what Paul says here. Because Paul isn't just referring to lifelong singleness as a gift. After all, he says right here, it's good for widows to remain single. And they were married at some point. So whether Paul was always single or just single during his missionary journeys, I would argue that doesn't really matter. Because he clearly identifies himself with both groups here which means that the gift of singleness, first and foremost, is not always a permanent gift. Now, why is that so important? Because for our single people in the room, that means that if you are currently single, it's a gift, period. If you are currently single, then you are currently called to be single, no matter how you might feel, no matter how you might feel about that calling, that is the calling on your life. And it is not a punishment, and it is not a problem to be solved. A lot of people talk about the gift of singleness uh, in a lot of wrong ways. First, it is a spiritual gift. Paul actually uses the same Greek word, charisma, that he uses to refer to tongues and prophecy and interpretations, all the others, to refer to the gift of singleness. Uh, so that means that singleness is a spiritual gift. There are no single cessationists. How about that? It's a paradox. It is a gift that is given, sometimes taken away, and sometimes given back again. And due to our and, and my, for a long time, misconceptions about this gift, it is, it's something that I think a lot of us struggle to think of a good example of outside of like Jeremiah or Paul or John the Baptist or Jesus himself, right? So I'd like to send... One forward that a lot of you may not know is, a, is an amazing uh, advantage taken of the gift of singleness. And that's a man that our church would not exist without God's work through him, John Calvin. John Calvin was born in 1509 in France. At that time, Martin Luther was about 25. So they have a little bit of an age difference. It's actually about the same age difference I have with Brent. We're about a little over 20 years. And not to compare ourselves with the earlier reformers because Brent's too skinny to be Martin Luther. I'm too fat to be John Calvin. But... <laughs> Uh, just to kind of give you an idea, they were contemporaries, uh, and when John Calvin was born, Martin Luther had just begun teaching the Bible in Germany, but the Roman Catholic Church was still the top dog. Now, in 1517, when John Calvin was about eight years old, that's when Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the castle church at Wittenberg and began the Great Reformation. A little bit after that, and, and, and no, John Calvin grew up Catholic. He was, a, he was a devout Catholic, but sometime in the 1530s and his 20s, he joined the Reformation. Because of that, he was exiled to Switzerland for a few years. Well, he was in Switzerland at 1536, at 27 years old. This, is gonna, this should convict you guys. I almost cried when I read this. At 27 years old, single and gifted with it, John Calvin published the first draft of the Institutes of the Christian Religion which is probably the most important document to the Reformation that God didn't write himself. Uh, that's a big deal. If you've ever read the Institutes of the Christian uh, Religion, stop lying. No, you haven't. It's so big. It's insane. Uh, but he wrote it at 27 years old, and he wrote it out of conviction because he was so convicted that while he was hiding in Switzerland, so many of the other reformers were being burned alive by the Roman Catholic Church back in France. A year after writing the Institutes, Calvin was back in France, 28 years old, still single, uh, and he was getting his brother and sister to bring them with him, and he ended up spending the night in Geneva, Switzerland. And that night in Geneva, Switzerland, he met a man named Will Farrell, <laughs> the reformer, not the elf. Uh, and Will Farrell told him, I love what he told him, he sat down with John Calvin, this 28-year-old, uh, and he said, listen, God is going to curse your retirement if you just go off and write books for the rest of life. You have got to be a pastor. So John Calvin stayed in Geneva and became a pastor there. Two years later, as reformers are, they were both banished from Geneva. Uh, so for three years after his banishment, Calvin served as a pastor in Stra Strasbourg, I think is how you say it. 
uh, and don't judge me, is it Strauss? Well, conjugal, right, okay? Uh, so, have grace. <laughs> now, a couple notes. Look, all through Calvin's time in ministry, people were, this is documented, all right? People were trying to play matchmaker for him. All throughout his time, people were constantly trying to set him up with other people. All the sweet old ladies in his church were like, you've gotta, I've gotta get you together, whatever. He was 31 years old at this time, and apparently a lot of women were very interested in him, but he remained single until 1540. In 1540, an Anabaptist woman, nice, uh, named Idolette and her husband joined Calvin's church. So it's the beginning of 1540, this woman and her husband joined his church, and like a month later, her husband died, okay? By August, she and Calvin were married. So you think Ray and Allison moved fast, all right? That's... We need to catch up, people. John Calvin had it figured out. Uh, she already had two children, and they moved into, he brought those children into his home, of course, and they all moved back to Geneva one year later for him to preach again. So back pastoring in Geneva, Calvin and his wife tried to have kids together, and they had three children over the next seven years, and all three of them died, either in childbirth or shortly after uh, they were born. Then in March of 1549, John Calvin's wife died. They were married for eight and a half years. Calvin was 40 years old, and he never remarried. He took Paul's advice on singleness, but he was not idle. He put his hands to the plow for God's kingdom in a way that no married, truthfully, no married man could. One of his acquaintances in Geneva described his life like this. I'm just going to quote him. Calvin did not spare himself at all. He preached 10 times every two weeks, twice each Sunday. He lectured three times in theology every week. He lectured every Friday at a Bible study. He visited every sick member of his church and personally performed all counseling. All of that while writing his many great works and ever adding to his magnum opus, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, which after his wife's death grew to four times its original size. On top of all that, John Calvin was a very sick Man, like physically sick man. Uh, he had a very sensitive stomach and constantly had migraines. He found the only way to keep himself was to starve himself. Uh, but he was constantly plagued by gout, feverish shivers, gas, coughing up blood, hemorrhoids, and he constantly had kidney stones. And in his time of suffering and slaving away as a single man, he wrote this letter. He's, John Calvin said this about himself. The man that did all this said, apart from the sermons and the lectures, there is a month gone by in which I have scarce done anything. In such wise, I am almost ashamed to live so uselessly. He wrote that letter because he only preached 20 sermons and 12 lectures that month. Yeah, that should convict us. On top of that, Catholics were constantly shooting muskets at his house uh, and he was able to live there without fear uh, of protecting a family because he lived in the house alone, but he was constantly on all sides at war. And he was single for a time, he was married for a time, and then he was single again, and he remained single until he died because he worked so hard, he died at 54 years old. And John Calvin was buried in an unmarked grave at his own request, because he had no children to carry on his name, no wife remaining. He had no personal legacy. He had no idea. He did, by the way, he didn't invent the name Calvinism. He would hate that. He was a very humble man. You think he regretted any of that for a moment? No, absolutely not. And he could have never accomplished all this without being entirely devoted to God's mission. John Calvin took advantage of singleness when he had it because he found his contentment not in relationship status, but in Christ. So why are we talking about John Calvin? Because this is convicting. And the truth is, single people don't work like this anymore. Look, Aaron and I manage, I think, more volunteers between students and kids than the whole rest of the church combined. And let me tell you something. The last service laughed at this. Don't laugh, because it's not funny. The single flakiest volunteers that we have in our ministries are single people. Why? It's wild. I cannot tell you how many single college students have looked me in the eyes, you can laugh at this, and said, I'm just too busy to serve more than once a month at church. It's crazy. Is Zorn in here? 
No? All right, well, let me, good. Let me tell you about Zorn, because he'd stand up and stop me. He's a John Calvin-y kind of guy. Very humble. Zorn Moore is married. He runs a business. He's raising two boys. He serves in the trek room on Sundays. He leads a small group of high schoolers every Wednesday night. Every other Thursday night, he leads an adult small group here at the church, and he's going to camp with us, and he's discipling his family, and he's married. He's not single, but college is so hard, people say. It's really, college is not that hard. I'm sorry, it's just not. It's you, you try taking care of children. What did Vody Bakum say? They're vipers and diapers, right? They're hard. It's crazy. Look, can you imagine? Look at how many single people we have in this church. Can you imagine what Ackworth could look like? If the single people of Four Points stepped up and lived like John Calvin, we could take this city. There'd be people out, we'd planted four other campuses in Ackworth by now. But we're not. What about everyone else, the single people ask? Well, the families are doing their job because their job is first to disciple their families. And they do it. We got good family discipleship here at the church. I would know I'm the family discipleship director. Praise God. We love our families. But you know what a married person always says when I talk to them about a serving opportunity at the church? They always say a great thing. They always say, let me check with my spouse. That's a great answer. You know what single people always say? Let me, let me pray about it. <laughs> let me ask God. Good call. That's a good call. Let me know when God gets back to you on that. Because I know it's a real hard decision on committing your free time to discipleship. I don't know what God would want you to do here, Call of Duty or church. <laughs> difficult, difficult, difficult. And it's funny because God never talks to them. Andrew Moore is not in here, but it's amazing. Andrew Moore always gets back to me before God does. Why? Because if you're just going to pray and ask God and wait, Brent has a great illustration. He always says, he wants to give a bullet to everybody in the church. So when they go, oh, I'm just waiting to see if I feel lead. You can just stick your hand in your pocket and feel that bullet, and you can feel some lead. All right? Why? Because God has called us to a mission. What are we doing? I'm calling you out, single people. You gotta do it while you can. Why am I so passionate about it? Because I'm about to not be single anymore. Look, I am, I'm about to get married. And the truth is, Gabby's the first girl I've ever dated. In 27 years, I had no, just not even a girlfriend for distraction. I'm not saying that to like puff myself up because I'm holy, because the reason I was single for all that time is because God just absolutely sabotaged my, me as a person uh, so that I could stay devoted to him. I was not ready at all. But look, you know what the hardest, honestly, you know what the hardest struggle is for me in preparing for marriage? It's like, as we go to counseling with Jeremy and Allie, it's putting the marriage first. That is so difficult for me to prioritize my fiance. Why? Because marriage has to be your first ministry. Believe it or not, my fiance doesn't get excited when I cancel plans or ignore her. Even when my response is, but it's for the gospel, babe. She's still, for some reason, she's not like, oh, okay, you go. Yeah, cancel our dinner plans we've had for a month. That's great. Why? Because that's sin. I'm sinning there. She comes first. And I have to step back now. And it's hard. Because I've had a lot of time to devote and stay up all night and, and do things for God's glory. But I have something now that has to come before ministry and before my uh, job to build God's kingdom. I mean, do you have any idea, single people, what, even tiny things like not having a curfew, not having a family that you have to go home to, do you know how much ministry gets done after midnight? I mean, seriously, do you know what an advantage it is to be able to have fellowship without a curfew? So much opportunity to share grace and love for people. We could be doing so much more work for the kingdom. Single people, you should be, yes, machines. And I'm talking about old single people too, by the way. Not just young single people, so you're not off the hook. Yes, machines. Why aren't we? I think a big reason is because so many singles who should be focused primarily on building God's kingdom like Paul don't. Instead of focusing on what they do have, they're focused on what they don't have. 
You can be, and look, you can be content in Christ and, and singleness and still desire marriage. Because desiring marriage doesn't disrupt the gift of singleness. Discontentment disrupts the gift of singleness. And if you're discontent with singleness, it's really Christ that you're discontent with. You get that, right? It's not your relationship status. If you're not happy single, <laughs> spoiler alert, you're not gonna be happy married. Look at Solomon. Read Ecclesiastes. The dude had more marriages than anybody ever. And what did he's like, oh, there's nothing. It's all pointless. He tried everything. And if we, here's what you're doing. You're saying, I don't want to find my joy in Christ now. I want to, I want to find it in the next thing. And when you get married, the next thing is going to be having kids. When you have kids, the next thing is going to be having more kids. Then it's going to be having promotions. Then it's going to be getting your kids out of the house. This is going to be retirement. Then you're going to be sitting there retired wondering, what did I do with my life? Because retirement isn't fulfilling. I know it's hard for single women in the church to have friends who are constantly talking about their weddings and their children and their husbands. I know it's hard for men and their singles to, to be not considered for things because you, you, people have an idea that it's immature and that you lack something because you're not married. Or for people that get older, to, people even will question, well, maybe you've got some weird sexual issue with yourself because you've gone single for so long. I know it's hard. I know it's not an easy thing, but look, what Paul's saying is don't rush to marriage. Look, many sweet Sweet and well-intentioned Christians are going to try to play matchmaker. Trust me. I know. But married people, let single people be single. Quit marginalizing them. And you are marginalizing them when you obsess over getting them married. Celebrate their singleness. Look at the work that they're doing. And instead of telling them, uh, you know, I've got somebody I'd like you to meet. Say, hey, I see what you're doing and it's beautiful. And I'm encouraged and pray for them. That does way more good. Listen, Paul wouldn't want to date your cousin's friend's daughter and neither do the guys of Four Points. So quit trying to set them up. Quit matchmaking and pray for them and encourage them and enable them and pour into the things that they're doing in a way that you can't. Single people, just work more. Devote more of your time to Christ. Put your hands to the plow and trust God. But Paul says in verse 9, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now you've got to remember Paul's audience here. Much of Paul's single listeners here were likely engaged because of Corinth and the culture of Corinth in premarital sex, possibly with prostitutes or other people. Corinth was a sexually depraved place. And what Paul's not doing here is excusing sexual immorality. But he is saying if you can't control yourselves, you should seek marriage. But a note, these people, Paul does not imply, are less mature or any less spiritual than the other group, okay? So this is written to these people in Corinth, but there's a really good application for today. If you have a strong desire for sexual intimacy... Don't pursue it outside of marriage. The desire, and even the strong desire, it's not a bad thing. And it will be good in marriage. But if you can't keep it in check, it's better to get married. Because even if the desire doesn't end in sexual immorality, it will prevent you from being effective in the Lord's work. That's what Paul's saying. But again, he isn't excusing sexual immorality. Scripture's clear. All believers must rely on the Spirit to kill sin, and we're all called to put sin to death. But marriage is God's plan for sexual relief. And that's a good plan. And MacArthur has five really, really good points for these people, and I'm gonna paraphrase them for you guys. One, don't seek to get married just to be married. Two, it is okay to be on the lookout for the right person. You shouldn't just, you know, learn someone's name and ask them to marry you. But the best way to find the right person is to be the right person. Work. Three, until you find your person, redirect your energy into things that keep your mind away from temptation. Spiritual service. Serving at the church. Physical service. Going to the gym. Serving at the point on Wednesday nights. Please. Four. Remember that God has given you the strength to resist temptation. And five, find contentment in your situation and give thanks to God. So 
In these first two verses, which believe it or not, we're actually making good time. I know it seems slow. Paul's laid out three options and he's ranked them all. Number one, best option, be single like Paul, which means singleness with no obsession over marriage. It means singleness with no pressure for marriage. It means singleness if you can be single and not be constantly boy crazy or girl crazy and thinking about your relationship in the future. That's the best option. By the way, singleness and marriage, both gifts from God, and he clearly says one is better than the other. So again, if you aren't content with singleness, you're not gonna be content with the lesser gift. Two, next best is to be married and be able to engage in sex in a way that honors and glorifies God in marriage. Three, the worst is to be single and totally unable to engage in sex in a way that glorifies God, but instead constantly fighting sexual desire and temptation in yourself. That's a person that needs marriage, but for some reason is not getting it either because they're too picky or because they're uh, trying to be an ascetic and trying to keep themselves away and hold themselves back. This right here is why you see so much child molestation in the Catholic Church. Because it's not a doctrine from God that the Catholic priests are required to stay celibate. Timothy says it's a, the, the book of Timothy says it's a doctrine of the devil. And it is unnatural. And those men burn with passion. And Satan loves it. Because Satan hates sex. So, that's it, single people. Moving on. Just kidding. Keep listening. Next, I'm going to talk about Divorce. And before we get into this, I just want to remind everybody what Brent said last week that is so important as we move through this. This section of Paul's letter is answering questions. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote. So all of the things he's addressing here, he's answering questions that the Corinthians asked him. So what we're about to cover is by no means a comprehensive theological statement uh, of doctrine on divorce. It is answers to questions. So if this rises up questions in you, that's okay. The fact that it doesn't answer doesn't mean the Bible doesn't have answers for you. It's just not comprehensive. So verse 10. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. Now, before we get into divorce, I want to talk about how Paul wrote this section because many progressive Christians attack the concept of biblical inerrancy with texts like this. Uh, people, people are constantly trying to, progressives are constantly trying to drive a wedge between Paul and between Jesus. They're trying to, you know, and you hear things all the time. They'll say things like, oh, well, that's, Paul said that, not Jesus. What you're quoting to me is from Paul, right? So it doesn't hold the same authority. So I don't like red letter Bibles. There's actually a quote one commentator said that I love that says this. You either have a Bible where all the words of Jesus are in red or you have a Bible where all the words of God are in black. All of scripture is God breathed. All of it is the word of God. He's speaking through Paul here clearly. But you'll see this argument applied with things like homosexuality. Or you'll see this applied with things like uh, female pastors. Let's say, oh, well, Paul spoke on those things, just Jesus. That was just written to those people in that context. It doesn't apply to us. That's not true. It does. Look, there are letters that Paul wrote that don't apply to us. Guess what? They're not in the Bible. There are other letters that he wrote to the church in Corinth that we don't have because God didn't preserve them because they weren't for us. Look, it is ridiculous to think that an omniscient and sovereign God would, one, Preserve something for us that we don't need. Or two, preserve something for us that the church would misinterpret for 2,000 years until some Episcopal church in California finally gets God's true revelation for what he really meant by saying the opposite of what he meant for all time. It doesn't make sense. Right? God is an effective communicator. He's not mixed up. He didn't write the Bible to trip up his church for 2,000 years. So when people come with new, they're like, I actually just figured out what Paul really means by this, by adding these numbers and putting the text in this. That's, this applies to us. That's why God gave it to us. That's why we're reading it in the room today. So Paul says this, not I but the Lord, because there were things that Jesus explicitly taught that were commonly known. The Gospels probably hadn't been written yet when he wrote this letter to the Corinthians. Uh, when Saul became a believer on the road to Damascus, Jesus himself appeared to him and knocked him off his horse. And after that, he didn't go to Jerusalem to study under the apostles. He went to Arabia. 
Now, this is just from one verse in Acts is how we know this. So a lot of people don't know this. But Paul says that he actually himself learned for three years in Arabia from Jesus Christ himself. Which means that that's why we call him an apostle, because Jesus revealed himself to him and spoke to him. I mean, I don't see any other way that you get the book of Romans from just meditating, right? You don't get Romans 8 except when God himself speaks it to you and you pin it for his glory. So some of the things that Paul says, Jesus has already spoken. Other things, Paul is expounding on Jesus' teaching, inspired by God, okay? So as we get into this, the truth of the Bible's teaching on divorce and specifically on the things that Jesus said about divorce are incredibly uncomfortable for everybody, especially considering statistically every single person in this room has been affected by a divorce in some way. All of us have seen it in this world. So these teachings are gonna stir up hard questions. The teaching themselves I don't think are that difficult, but they, they raise hard questions and they're uncomfortable. But we gotta remember what God says is more important than what we think. When we come across something in scripture that we don't like, we gotta change our minds because we can't change what God says. So as we go into this, remember that. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. He's talking about two Christians. So if a Christian gets divorced from another Christian, they are not free to marry other people. They must stay single or they must reconcile because where there's repentance, there can be reconciliation. There's one exception to this in the book of Matthew that Jesus gives, and it's adultery. It's fornication. The drunk drawer term is porneia. And we've talked about this multiple times in 1 Corinthians already. Now, why does Paul not mention that here? One, it was probably something people were generally familiar with, but even if it wasn't, here's what I think. Uh, if Paul had told the church in Corinth uh, that they were free to get a divorce because of sexual immorality in their midst, I think half the church would have gotten up and walked out of the room and back with divorce papers before chapter 9. Because we remember chapter 5, right? They had a dude in the church that was sleeping with his own stepmother, and nobody said anything about it. Right? Paul said that the secular world, the Corinthians, the secular group, were, were, looked at the Christians and were like, you guys are doing stuff that even we wouldn't get into. Right, so this was a drastically sexually depraved culture that Paul is speaking into here. And fornication was rampant in Corinth. So I think it's, it's plausible. It's not dishonest. It's just, you know, Paul wisely didn't load those guns. Uh, and his answer to their questions about divorce, he kept it simple. Though there were exceptions. He said, don't do it. Don't entertain the idea of divorce. Malachi 2.16 is clear. It says, God hates divorce. That's not a paraphrase. It's just what it says. Look, Christian couples will get married, and they will think that they made a mistake at some point. That happens. But what do we do when it happens? We trust God. We devote ourselves to the work that God has given us and called us to in marriage, and then we trust that God can refresh and redeem and renew anything. After all, he raises from death to life. You think he can't do the same thing to a marriage? The truth is, hard marriages glorify God. And a lot of people have bad views of divorce, bad views of divorce, because they have bad views of marriage. Marriage is not about us. It's about God. The goal of marriage isn't happiness. One of the most mind-blowing quotes from this book we're going through in marriage counseling right now, it's called Catching Foxes. It's this. Many Christians have never heard that marriage doesn't exist to be a delivery vehicle for our appetites and dreams and personal needs. When most of us began dreaming of marriage, it wasn't as a way to sacrifice our desires and wants, but as a way to fulfill them. That's not what marriage is. And we live in a culture, and a culture that has crept into parts of the church that says, look, get a divorce. You deserve to be happy. You don't. You don't. That's not biblical. That is satanic. Satan loves that thing. Satan is sitting there, he's like, yeah, you deserve to be happy. 
You don't want to be in this anymore. That's not biblical, and it comes from a low view of marriage. Next, Paul shifts the focus to what must have been a pretty common problem in Corinth, which is Christians married to unbelievers. Now, we got to remember as we get into this, Paul planted the church in Corinth around 50 A.D., Okay, and the letter he's writing to the Corinthians came about three years later. So we've got to assume that most everybody in this church that had been married longer than three years had experience with being married to a non-believer. Why is that context important? Single people, if you fell asleep after I started talking about divorce, wake up because this is for you. Ready? This next text is absolutely not Paul giving permission for missionary dating because it can be read that way if you don't contextualize it properly, if you're young and unmarried and you are dating a non-believer, break up with them. It is bad for you and it is bad for them and it will not work. It won't work. Paul's later gonna write in this letter that bad company corrupts good morals and that is absolutely true in a dating relationship between a Christian and a non-believer. He said, how can you, you don't be unequally yoked. What place does darkness have with light? It's bad for them, too. Not just bad for you. Because they're going to pull you down. Verse 12, he says, To the rest I say, I not the Lord. So again, just to be clear, this doesn't mean that it isn't from God, but that it's a fresh revelation. He's, he isn't just repeating known teachings of Jesus here, but he's expounding upon what Jesus said. To the rest I say, God says, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now look, this is way less common, I think, where we live now because we aren't in a mission field like Corinth. Paul's saying, look, you just got saved and your spouse is still worshiping Aphrodite. Don't just abandon them. Logistically, it makes sense. A church is planted, the gospel is taken out into the city, and then individuals are saved. It's very unusual for both people, both married people, to be brought from death to life in the exact same moment. Uh, So as the church grew, if the principle was to get divorced because your spouse was a non-believer, Corinth would have just been one big singles ministry. And we've seen their track record. It would have been a toxic, you think you've been a part of a toxic singles ministry? It would have been horrible there. You can imagine how this must have felt for these families. The Christian spouse just brought from death to life. And they're married to a dead person. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. That's a crazy verse. What? It's so interesting. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they're holy. What does that mean? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that your salvation extends to your family. It doesn't mean that because you are a believer that will always extend to your spouse. But John Calvin, take it back to him, had some really good insight on this. He said, the godliness of the one does more to sanctify the marriage than the godlessness of the other does to make it unclean. Why is it important that we differentiate between this happening in a marriage and this happening in a dating relationship? Because in a dating relationship, it's flip-flopped. The godlessness will corrupt the relationship. But here, we see this fascinating... Look, Paul's verse about bad company corrupting good character doesn't apply in the unique circumstance because of God's provision here. This is such a unique thing that God is saying. A Christian married to a non-believer makes salvation more likely. And in the meantime, before salvation, this half-Christian marriage will be more holy for everyone. It will be set apart. It will look different. Peter says really well in 1 Peter chapter 3, a similar idea. And they tie together. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, that is crazy. The focus is on behavior and action over conversation. That's not the case. You always hear people be like, well, I'm gonna go preach the gospel and use you know, words if I have to. Nah, 
Nobody's ever been saved by you smiling at them. They need the gospel. They need the whole gospel. That they're dead in their sin. That God loved them. That Jesus died for them. Then he didn't stay dead. He rose again. That if we believe in him, we can have eternal life. and Find our joy in him eternally. That's the gospel. But in a Christian and unchristian marriage union, the marriage requires a work. And basically, for a Christian woman married to a non-Christian, the deeply ingrained truth of God's relationships and roles in marriage will be attractive to her non-Christian husband. And her submissive behavior is going to resonate specifically with him and uniquely, and it'll be a unique witness to him through his wife because it's how God designed husbands and wives to work together. And that action can lead to him believing in the gospel that his wife believes. That's amazing and beautiful. And it shows how God loves marriage uniquely and how he set it apart from so many other things and he even works differently in the marriage union by his grace. And that's why we fight so hard for the roles that God's established in marriage. They're crucial. Verse 15 and 16 but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So Paul's clear here. The Christian spouse should not take the incentive to divorce. And in the marriage, because Christians don't live by sight. We live by faith. No matter how hopeless your marriage may look, you were way more hopeless when you were dead in your sin. God brought you to life. And imagine, not just in our context, imagine in their context, to be a believer as a Corinthian woman in a time when it is unheard of for a woman to adopt a different religion than her husband, but to be a Corinthian woman and to have a husband who's still going to the temple of Aphrodite to sleep with temple prostitutes, and calling it worship? Can you imagine how hard that would be? He's saying, even then, you don't live by sight. No matter how unlikely or hopeless it seems, believers are going to trust in God. But that being said, non-believers have eyes too. And they can see from their side that it may seem hopeless. And if that hopelessness gets to them and they abandon the marriage, in that case, Paul says, let them go. Now, all of this opens up a million questions. What about abuse? What if I've been divorced and my you know, ex is dead now? What if I made these? What if I did this when I was not a believer and neither of us were blue? Right? There's tons of questions. I could sit up here and list them for hours. I could sit here a ton of them while I was studying for this text. The truth is, this text doesn't speak to that. But this text does speak to a couple things that I want to lay out and be clear about. Number one, when it comes to divorce, if you're in doubt and you're not at peace, and you're convicted, stay single. That's Paul's advice, not just to divorce people, but to married people, or to never married people, not married people, to never married people, and to widows. God is faithful. And if you've made mistakes in the past, we confessed our sin. You've been forgiven. And you can move forward now. But from now on, this is what you believe. Second, if you do have questions, and if you're listening to all this, and you're like, but what about me? That doesn't address me. What about where I'm at? I understand. And I don't have an answer for you. Please take it to our pastors. Take it to the elders of this church. It's what they're here for. Don't sit alone in it. If divorce is in your brain, share it. Don't let it stew up. Confess it. We have wise counsel that God has instituted here at four points, and they will lead you and guide you well as God intends it. So in closing, I want to close with this. Marriage is greater than any sin. It was made by God, and sin is our contribution to this world. Marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. And in Christ, nothing 
is unredeemable. I want to share a story I was reading, a true story about a preacher. Uh, And this preacher fell in love with a woman who was a prostitute. And he just, God was so clear to him. He spoke to him and he he knew that God was calling him to pursue this woman. And he did. And they got married. And she moved away from her old lifestyle and repented. It was a beautiful moment. Not long after they were married, he was preaching. and He was preaching his sermons to his people. Which you can imagine must be a beautiful thing with his redeemed wife sitting amongst them as he called his people to turn back to God. The world is broken and they needed to return to him. In the beginning, his wife became pregnant and they had a son. But as time passed, his wife began to be around less and less. And his wife began to care for their son less and less. She attended his sermons less and less. And he had suspicions. It didn't take long before his suspicions became confirmations. And he found out that his wife was cheating on him. And not just with one man, but with many men. She had gone back to her life as a prostitute and abandoned her husband. And not even for love, but for sex and money. They had two more children. And the preacher couldn't even be sure they were his children. A daughter and a son. The son was definitely not his. And the preacher pleaded with his wife. He took the son in anyway and he said, please stop. He threatened, he said, I'm going to stop funding your life. It didn't work. He tried to stop her in the act. It didn't work. She wouldn't be stopped. When she returned, he always took her back. When she told him she was never going back, never again, he always accepted her back into his home. And he blessed her. And he gave her gifts and provided for her. But then he would walk the town streets and he'd see a man walking by with the gift that he'd given his wife because she would take the things that he provided for her and she would give them away to the men she cheated with. And eventually it all came to a climax and she left him for good, alone. But he didn't give up on his wife. And he hunted her down. And when finally he tracked her down, he found that she had amassed such a massive debt to her pimp, to the man who controlled her life, that he was selling her into human trafficking because the only way to possibly pay it back. And he looked at her and he wrote that she looked like a shadow of the woman that he married. She was beaten and dirty and broken and emaciated. He said she looked like she had been living in a barren desert. And though she was already his by marriage, he had to buy her the same way that all the men who had his wife bought her. 750 years before Jesus, the prophet Hosea paid the man who whored his own wife out just to have his own wife back. Does that sound like a good marriage? Look, according to God, Hosea and Gomer had a beautiful marriage. It doesn't seem beautiful to us. But from God's perspective, yeah, it's full of pain. And it's full of hurt. And it's full of sorrow. But it's also full of grace. And it's a picture of our marriage with Jesus. And he paid a much greater price than Hosea did. Hosea paid with money. But Jesus bought us with his blood. And he didn't, he, we didn't have to be saved from ourselves. We had to be saved from God's wrath. And Jesus, in his infinite grace, as an infinite God, paid an infinite price to secure what? Us. Look at us. I want to ask this in closing. For anyone that's wondering, would divorce be permissible in the marriage of Christ and his church? According to Ezekiel 16.32, it says that we are an adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Jeremiah 3.1 says, we have played the harlot with many lovers. And would you return to me? Jesus has every right to divorce his bride. But look at Hosea 11. 
verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Atma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart recoils within me. You know how crazy it is for God to say that? Right? You know Jesus weeps 20 times for every one time he laughs in Scripture? He was a man of sorrows because of us. He had infinite joy in God. He has infinite joy in God. But he hurts for us. And God doesn't like us. How many of us love somebody we wish we could cut off, but we don't get to choose who we love? But God does. And God could remove himself from that pain and that suffering. He could choose not to love us anymore, but he does it voluntarily. He subjects himself to his heart recoiling within him. But his compassion grows warm and tender. He says, I will not execute my burning anger, and I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Our God will not divorce us. It does not matter how many times we commit adultery against Him, it doesn't matter how many other lovers we've taken. Over and over and over we've left Him. But He is better than us. And he is God and not a man. Praise God. He's God and not a man. And he's not like us. What a husband we have in Jesus. Let's pray. God, we are so much worse than we even think. You even protect us from seeing the all of the sin that we have in ourselves, that we wouldn't be totally dismayed, God, that we wouldn't feel totally hopeless. Everything is an act of grace from you. Lord, thank you for all of us today. May every single person, Lord, be encouraged. God, may nobody walk out of here feeling condemned. God, may every person who's made mistakes in their past, in marriage, and in singleness, God, may all of them know that they rest now in your grace and that there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And that is a good truth for us always. But Lord, you don't leave us in our sin and you promise to make us better, so do it, God. Use this text to make us better. That we may have a higher view of marriage and a higher view of you. We love you, Jesus. and Thank you for your grace in this marriage. It's in your name we pray. Amen.